Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, July 28th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Niger soldiers declare a coup. More details of U.S.-Russia diplomacy talks emerge. Mark Zuckerberg risks being held in contempt of Congress. The U.S. Fed hikes rates again. El Salvador introduces mass trials for gang members. Mitch McConnell says he's fine after a press conference incident. Singapore prepares to execute its first woman in 20 years. U.S. officials plan to meet Taliban representatives in Doha. Canada's Trudeau unveils a cabinet shuffle. And over half of the U.S. Women's World Cup soccer team refuse to sing the anthem. In our top story, news coming from Niger as soldiers announce a coup on national TV. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Guardian, Independent, Al Jazeera, and Africa News. A day after members of Niger's Presidential Guard captured President Mohamed Bazoum, soldiers announced on Tuesday that the state has undergone a military coup on national TV. While President Bazoum and Foreign Minister Hasumi Masadou had urged democratic forces in Niger to resist the coup, a statement on Thursday by Niger's army declared its support for the insurrection, claiming its priority was avoiding conflict that could create a bloodbath and affect the security of the population. Colonel Amadou Abdurman, alongside nine other military personnel, stated that the coup had put an end to the regime that you know due to the deteriorating security situation and bad governance. He announced that the state's borders were closed, all institutions were suspended, and a national curfew had been imposed. Bazoum was elected as Niger's president in 2021 during its first democratic transfer of power since it gained independence from France in 1960. It's believed that on Wednesday morning, the presidential guard surrounded and detained Bazoum and his wife at his house. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has called for the immediate release of Bazoum while reaffirming America's support for the democratically elected president as U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, spokesperson, condemned the unconstitutional change in government. Niger has been viewed as a key West African state by the West due to the influence of jihadist groups such as al-Qaeda and the Islamic State Group in the Sahel region. According to Masadu, Bazoum remains in good health and his physical integrity has not been threatened. All right, we like to separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Our first narrative spin is Narrative A from the Toronto Star. With a plethora of West African nations becoming destabilized in recent years, in tandem with the presence of Islamic terrorists and even the Wagner Group operating in the Sahel, Niger's coup is another worrying sign of instability in the region. Niger's fall leaves the West with a dwindling list of partners capable of helping battle extremists in West Africa. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Despite the attempted coup, Bazoum has defiantly vowed to protect the hard-won democratic gains made by the country in recent years. Alongside global condemnation, Bazoum is holding his ground as he attempts to create a better life for one of the poorest and most coup-prone states in the world. The president has survived an attempted coup before, and he may be able to do so again. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. More details of U.S.-Russia diplomacy talks emerge. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Moscow Times, NBC News, and Asia Times. 
Further details of diplomatic talks between the U.S. and Russia emerged this week after a former U.S. official involved in the meetings spoke to the Moscow Times, an independent Russian outlet now based in Armenia to avoid possible persecution at home. The existence of these back-channel discussions aimed at ending the war in Ukraine was first reported by NBC News earlier in the month, revealing that former U.S. national security officials have been holding talks with prominent Russians believed to be close to the Kremlin. This process is known as Track 2 Diplomacy, in which discussions don't involve current government officials. On at least one occasion, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov took part in the discussions. This is referred to as Track 1.5 Diplomacy, meaning that current officials are involved on one end of the talks. On the U.S. side, participants have included Richard Haas, Charles Kupchin, Thomas Graham, and Mary Beth Long, among others. All are former U.S. government officials. According to the latest Moscow Times report citing one of the U.S. participants, the former official said, I have been visiting Moscow at least every three months. We were given some access to the Kremlin's thinking, though not as much as we would have liked. After Russian participants reportedly expressed that a humiliating defeat is not acceptable to the Kremlin, the U.S. official said, It was here that we made clear that the U.S. was prepared to work constructively with Russian national security concerns. The official further stated, in fact, we emphasize that the U.S. needs, and will continue to need, a strong enough Russia to create stability along its periphery. The U.S. wants a Russia with a strategic autonomy in order for the U.S. to advance diplomatic opportunities in Central Asia. We in the U.S. have to recognize that total victory in Europe could harm our interests in other areas of the world. Russian power is not necessarily a bad thing. Despite the conciliatory remarks, the official said that talks had reached an impasse, stating that Russian President Putin is the major block to all progress. The official added that, for this reason, Washington should begin reaching out to the anti-war Russian elite and begin making progress with them. If there was support for another leader, he said ousting Putin would not be impossible. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And we start our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Asia Times. The evidence suggests that at every possible turn, the West has hampered rather than fostered a possible peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. Had talks been taken seriously since 2014, this whole war could have been avoided. Now, with every day that passes, more destruction of Ukraine is brought. This is the time to bring the conflict to a close. And foreign policy brings us narrative B. It's often argued that all wars end in negotiation, so peace talks in this instance will inevitably have to be sought. Not only is this wrong, but premature negotiations can do more harm than good. If Russian and Ukrainian interests do not overlap, we could be setting the stage for another war. The Metaculous Prediction community giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They're saying that there's a 10% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Well, let's hope. What do we have? Six months left? Yeah, they have six months left. And I feel like once winter comes about, everything kind of stops Slows over there down. and goes yeah. to hibernation. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that probably includes peace talks. Sure. So right. from the sounds of it, we're going pretty far down the list of American diplomats. You might get a tap on the shoulder pretty soon. <laughs> I did get a letter in the mail today. Yeah. Oh, well, we're happy to inform you that you may be a winner. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg making headlines again as the House is to consider a contempt of Congress recommendation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Deadline, NBC, Associated Press, Fox News, and Forbes. Before the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee could consider a resolution recommending that Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg be held in contempt of Congress, Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio Thursday, 
said the vote was on hold because Meta committed to cooperate with the committee's investigation. The committee has asked Facebook to turn over internal communications similar to those it received from Twitter that allegedly showed the government pressuring the company to censor certain speech. Jordan subpoenaed top executives from Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple in February as part of Republicans' investigations into alleged suppression of conservative speech. Until now, Zuckerberg willfully refused to comply with the subpoena, as characterized by Jordan. A Meta spokesman responded to the committee's potential contempt charge against Zuckerberg by saying the company has operated in good faith and delivered 53,000 pages of documents, both internal and external, to the Judiciary Committee. If found in contempt, Zuckerberg could face jail time and a fine of up to $100,000. All right, matching left and right narratives on this story, Eric. The post-millennial brings us the Republican spin. While big tech thinks it's above the law and will be protected by Democrats, Republicans like Jordan are holding them to account. Meta and the other social media platforms must answer for censoring conservatives, so it might as well cooperate with the probe instead of being held in contempt. We counter that with the Democratic narrative coming from Politico. This is all theatrics. Meta has done what it's been asked of it and cooperated as much as the other tech firms. But Jordan knows that targeting Zuckerberg will earn him headlines while also pleasing Elon Musk, the owner of Meta rival X, formerly Twitter. Musk has become an ally to Republicans, and Zuckerberg recently launched a competitor to X, so this could be a political price he has to pay. Do you think this was the right chess piece for the next move for him? I think that um, kind of in the way that that Trump continues to get momentum from people bringing lawsuits and things against him, in a way, I imagine maybe Zuckerberg isn't totally upset about this because it keeps, as he's launching his new product, it kind of keeps him in the news. The U.S. Fed hikes interest rates by 0.25%. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Times, Associated Press, CNN, CNBC, and Reuters. On Wednesday, the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates a quarter point, putting the benchmark rate in the 5.25 to 5.5% range. Chair Jerome Powell also suggested that more might be needed to lower inflation to the Fed's 2% target. The midpoint of the benchmark rate now stands at its highest since 2001 with Powell saying that it was certainly possible another hike could come at the Fed's September meeting, saying there is a long way to go before inflation returns to the central bank's target. The recent hike was the 11th consecutive increase by the bank and their first after a one-month pause in rate movements in order to assess the economy. The Fed's inflation index stood at 3.8% in May compared to a year prior, down from April's 4.3%. A strong U.S. economy and tight labor market are credited for keeping inflation above target levels as the Fed tries to rein in inflation without inducing an economic downturn. Powell called the economic news good to see, but warned that continued growth could lead to stronger deflationary measures. On a potential rate hike at the September meeting, Powell said the Fed will be scrutinizing new inflation, employment, and consumer spending reports when making their decision, with some economists predicting a hike might be postponed until November. Some economists believe that steady consumer spending and job growth could cause a resurgence in inflation, while others argue a hike too early could plunge the U.S. into a recession. Powell says he believes it's still possible for inflation to be reduced without causing a deep recession. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative is our first spin. It's coming from Wall Street Journal. The Fed needs to stay the course on its inflation reduction regime as every dire prediction of a Fed-induced collapse from the rate hikes has failed to come true. 
The economic outlook in the country is stabilizing, which gives the Fed more latitude to raise rates and help curb rapid inflation. Powell and the Fed are taking reasonable, responsible steps to fight inflation and should ignore the political pressure to hold back. And directly opposed is this establishment-critical narrative from the Washington Post. The Fed needs to hold off on any additional interest hikes for the time being, lest they risk prematurely ending the economic growth America has been experiencing. The data suggests that the economy's hot streak will cool off by the end of the year as pandemic-era savings and stimulus money is depleted by households. With reports suggesting personal savings have reached a record high, the Fed should let the succession of rate hikes take its course before making another hike. News from El Salvador as Congress votes to allow mass trials for gang members. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and Reuters. El Salvador's Congress passed legislation on Wednesday that will permit courts to try accused gang members in mass trials. This is an effort to expedite thousands of cases for those imprisoned under an operation against street gangs. The new bill could allow the state to try up to 900 people at the same time if they come from the same region or are accused of belonging to the same designated criminal organization. It also increases prison time for gang leaders from 45 years to 60. Legislators from Salvadorian President Nayib Bukele's New Ideas Party, which has a majority in Congress, said the policy will strengthen security and efficiency. The bill passed by 67 votes in favor and six against. Johnny Wright Soul, a Nuestro Tiempo party politician, called the changes, quote, a scheme designed to carry out the government's plan to keep all those detained without a firm conviction, and said that mass convictions violate due process and individual rights. In a large crackdown, Bukele's suspended constitutional rights and authorities have detained over 71,000 people accused of being affiliated with gangs, which is approximately 1% of the country's population. According to the human rights group Christosal, approximately as little as 30% of those detained have clear ties to organized crime. At the end of May, a Salvadoran court sentenced former President Mauricio Funes and his justice minister to more than a decade in prison for their ties to criminal groups and failure to comply with duties. Thanks, Eric. America's Quarterly brings us Narrative A. In contrast with previous administrations, Bukele's crackdown on the country's notorious gangs has been highly successful, putting more than 60,000 dangerous criminals behind bars and dramatically slashing the murder rate that has plagued the nation for decades. Other nations in Latin America should take note of his wildly successful law and order policies, which have widespread approval with the voting public. Narrative B comes from El País. Bukele's all-out war on criminal organizations has taken a terrible toll on democracy and human rights. Thousands of innocent people have been arrested on loose grounds as the rise in safety comes at the expense of grave human rights abuses. Bukele has consolidated his power to near dictatorial levels. If he's let off the hook for his abuses, then any politician could be free from scrutiny. Mitch McConnell says he's fine after the press conference incident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, Fox News, NBC News, ABC News, USA Today, and CNN. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, froze mid-sentence while speaking during the GOP leadership conference Wednesday. The 81-year-old went silent for 19 seconds before being escorted away from the media by his top deputy, Senator John Barrasso, Republican of Wyoming, and a physician. McConnell went back to his office after the episode but returned to the podium a few minutes later to address reporters. McConnell told the press that he was fine, and an aide said he was just feeling lightheaded. This latest incident fueled speculation about the veteran politician's health 
as McConnell is just four months removed from a fall that caused a concussion and broken rib. McConnell also reportedly fell during a February trip and on July 14th at Washington's Reagan National Airport. Questions about politicians' age and health aren't confined to McConnell, as there were several high-profile octogenarians, that's someone between 80 and 90 years old, in high-level U.S. government positions, including President Joe Biden, who is 80, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, who is 90. At a Senate Appropriations Committee proceeding Thursday, Senator Feinstein appeared confused as she read a prepared statement during a standard roll call vote. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, can be heard repeatedly telling Feinstein to just say I to get the senator's vote on the record. Feinstein has said she is retiring at the end of her term in 2024, but McConnell has made no such commitments for when his seat is up in 2026. While many Americans worry about the age of their politicians, seniority rules incentivize elderly lawmakers to remain in office. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our round of spins begins with Narrative A coming from the Daily Beast. It's time to come out and state the obvious. American politicians are too old, and it's hurting their ability to function in high-level positions. It is not discriminatory to acknowledge the cognitive and physical decline of people in their 80s and 90s. And it's wrong to look the other way when elderly people are clearly struggling to keep up with a high-demand job. There needs to be some testing and safeguards to protect both the politicians and their constituents from the effects of advanced age. America's gerontocracy is a legitimate cause for concern. Narrative B comes from Esquire. Americans have made great progress in opposing discrimination upon characteristics such as race, gender, and sexual orientation, yet many people seem to be fine with blatant ageism. At every turn, older politicians on both sides are heavily scrutinized after every slip-up as the media calls for them to retire. The fact is that many of these 70-plus-year-old politicians are wiser and more effective than their younger counterparts. Modern technology and medicine have done wonders to keep people mentally and physically acute for much longer, and America's political system desperately needs seasoned leadership. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. It says there's a 56% chance that Mitch McConnell will cease to be the Senate Republican leader before January 20th, 2025. I know McConnell's kind of a lightning rod for for criticism, you know, but uh, I would say whatever you think about his policy or his choices, I think McConnell is really one of the most effective politicians we have, or at least he was until these issues started. It feels like whenever he sets his mind to doing a certain thing, that thing ends up happening. You know, you're right. He does. He's very effective and very efficient. I think one of the problems is lately he's been hanging out with Chevy Chase. Uh, I guess they're really close buddies. <laughs> and, you know, of course, Ch- so, you know, so Chevy. He's just working on his, he's just working on his, uh, his comedic chops, all these, these falls. He, yeah. You got to be careful. Chevy, <laughs> Chevy Chase says his back and his body is not the same since doing all those. I mean, they may be for fun, but Mitch, we need you. <laughs> in our next story, Singapore to execute its first woman in 20 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, BBC News, NPR Online News, Guardian, Mirror, and Voice of America. Authorities in Singapore are preparing to hang Siradewi Jamani on Friday in what would be the country's first execution of a woman in nearly 20 years. Jamani, found guilty of trafficking heroin in 2018, is one of two women on death row in Singapore. The last woman to be put to death was Yen Mei Wen in 2004 on drug-related charges according to the human rights group Transformative Justice Collective. This comes after Singapore reportedly executed Mohammed Aziz Hussein on Wednesday after being put on death row for trafficking heroin in 2018. Singapore has some of the harshest drug laws in the world, 
and has drawn international criticism in recent years for its executions of prisoners convicted of drug offenses. According to a joint statement made by Amnesty International, the Transformative Justice Collective, and seven other groups, Jamadi's hanging would mark the 15th drug-related execution since it resumed hangings in March of 2022, for an average of one execution every month. Singapore imposes the death penalty for violent crimes, including murder and some forms of kidnapping, but also for drug offenses, including trafficking more than 500 grams of cannabis and 15 grams of heroin. All right, the South China Morning Post brings us Narrative A. Singapore's zero-tolerance stance and strict narcotics laws have allowed the country to remain safe, secure, and relatively drug-free, which shows that capital punishment does work to deter drug traffickers. The death penalty is essential to Singapore's criminal justice system, and since it is an effective deterrent against drug-related crimes, the public widely supports it. The Guardian gives us Narrative B. Those on death row in Singapore are often from the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in the city-state, and executing these people just goes to show that the Singaporean state views them just as disposable as their drug kingpins do. There is no evidence that the death penalty is a deterrent for drug-related crimes or that it has any impact on the use and availability of drugs. Singapore needs to repeal the death penalty. The U.S. and Taliban to hold talks in Doha. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Independent, the United States State Department, Kabul Now, Middle East Eye, and Reuters. The U.S. State Department announced Wednesday that U.S. diplomats will meet with Taliban representatives in Doha, Qatar, before the end of July to discuss critical interests, including humanitarian support, economic stabilization, security, and women's rights. Deputy spokesperson Vedant Patel stressed, however, that the first round of talks since the Taliban took over Afghanistan in August 2021, does not indicate any kind of recognition, normalization, or legitimacy of the regime. Before heading to Qatar, U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan, Thomas West, and U.S. Special Envoy for Afghan Women, Girls, and Human Rights, Rina Amiri, met with officials from Kazakhstan, the Kyrgyz Republic, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan to discuss Afghanistan and Astana. Meanwhile, the Taliban delegation will be led by its acting foreign minister, Amir Khan Mutaki, as Kabul seeks to have sanctions eased, get its bank reserves unfrozen, and halt violations of its airspace. The cash-strapped Afghanistan is isolated, diplomatically and economically, as no country has recognized the Taliban's government. Foreign aid, once accounting for 95% of the government's budget, has dried up, and GDP has plummeted by 20%. It's estimated that only 5% of its population has enough to eat. Last month, the U.S. State Department released a report criticizing both Democratic U.S. President Joe Biden and his Republican predecessor Donald Trump for the chaotic pullout of U.S. troops in 2021, which saw an Islamic State suicide bomber kill 13 U.S. service members and over 150 Afghans outside an airport gate. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Voice of America. The talks in Doha between U.S. and Taliban delegates do not represent a change in U.S. policy of any kind, but rather an attempt to address the egregious human rights abuses committed by the fundamentalist de facto rulers, as well as the recent marginalization of Afghan women and girls. It's in the U.S.'s best interest to engage with the Taliban appropriately to solve these issues. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. Afghanistan is in a terrible situation facing an unprecedented humanitarian crisis. So talks are necessary if the situation is to improve, as the main driver of this suffering has been the sanctions and banking restrictions imposed by the U.S. 
Given that the Taliban has succeeded in halting violence and preventing another destructive civil war, it's about time for the international community to change its approach. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 25% chance that the United States will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau shakes up the cabinet. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Global News and Toronto Star. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Wednesday changed nearly three-quarters of his cabinet, replacing seven ministers in a move that affected more than a dozen ministers in his Liberal Party. The seven new cabinet members are Jenna Suds, Rechi Valdez, Yara Sachs, Arif Virani, Gary Amanda Sangari, Soraya martinez Ferrada, and Terry Beach. In all, 30 of 38 ministries were impacted in the biggest shakeup since the Liberal government took office in 2015. Anita Anand was among the demotions, shifting from defense minister to president of treasury board. Bill Blair will be the new defense minister, handling Canada-NATO relations. These changes come in the aftermath of a July poll showing 37% of voters favoring the conservative party, compared to 32% leaning toward the liberal party. Trudeau downplayed polling concerns in statements to reporters, saying the party is focused on, quote, building a brighter future. All right, we have right and left narratives for this story as well. The Calgary Herald brings us the right spin. Trudeau's government has long passed its expiration date, and this shuffle won't change its dismal electoral outlook. The government hasn't addressed the housing or cost of living crises, as incompetent ministers have dragged the party into scandal and controversy time and again. This move was purely cosmetic and won't have an impact. The Toronto Star gives us the left narrative. These changes show Trudeau and the Liberals are getting serious about righting the ship. Trudeau has shown that he's not afraid to make changes in order to get the country on the right track. The only poll that matters will be on Election Day. And there's plenty of time for the Liberals to prove their worth to the voters. Most of the U.S. women's national soccer team is silent during the U.S. anthem again. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, New York Post, and The Independent. Most members of the U.S. women's national team didn't sing along with the U.S. national anthem before their World Cup match against the Netherlands on Wednesday in New Zealand. Although Alex Morgan, Julie Ertz, and Lindsay Horan were seen singing, the majority of their teammates were silent before playing the Dutch team, who all sang the Netherlands anthem to a 1-1 draw. Previously, before the team's opening game against Vietnam last Friday, six of the 11 U.S. starting players didn't place their hands over their hearts during the anthem instead keeping their arms at their sides or behind their backs. While no one from the U.S. women's national team has expressed a reason for the silence, star player Megan Rapinoe, who in 2016 took a knee during the anthem, later that year wrote an essay explaining that she did it in solidarity with those protesting over alleged police brutality against black Americans. Later in 2019, she said she would never sing or put her hand over her heart during the national anthem again. All but one player knelt before a 2021 match against Australia. The U.S. women's national team is attempting to become the first team, men's or women's, to win a third straight World Cup championship. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from the Washington Examiner. These athletes are spoiled and disrespectful. They want the prestige that comes with playing for the USNWT, but they do a poor job of representing the country. They're setting a poor example for younger Americans who are becoming increasingly unappreciative of everything afforded them because they're American. And Narrative B comes from Just Women's Sports. One of the things afforded all Americans is freedom of speech, and that's exactly the right these players are exercising. Every American is fortunate to live in a country 
where they're not forced to sing the anthem and can represent their country as they wish. Luckily, the players are focused on playing the matches, while their critics are trying to make a controversy out of nothing. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, July 28th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join Join us next time on Improve the News.